From Immersive Labs, this is Cyber Humanity. Welcome everyone, I'm your host Chris Pace, joined once again by tame blue teamer Kev Breen. Hi. Lord Product, Paul Bentham. Hello. And finally, the nurse's hero, um, Max Vetter. I can't say that Hello. without letting everyone know that Max yeah, selflessly explain. gave of his time and biceps uh, to do some um, push-ups in order to get nurses at his local hospital somewhere um, nice to go and sit and eat their lunch. And so, well done to Max. Round of applause for Max. Bravo, Thank Max. You. Well done. Bravo. Yeah. Bravo, Max. Well, amazing work to all the companies as well who also helped do lots of uh, press-ups while I was doing them. In these podcasts, we try to focus on the human side of cybersecurity with some tech thrown in social engineering hacker motivations cyber crisis scenarios and more they essentially come in two flavors either us ranting about themes close to the hearts of security types or us chatting about threat and security stuff from recent weeks and this episode is one of those uh we're going to begin by talking about something that was splashed all over the bbc um and it's the 5g bio shield usb key which i'm sure we've all rushed out to buy it's a snip 238 pounds actually you can get um, a bargain you can buy, buy three of them <laughs> is it three three for a thousand three for that three for a thousand yeah. wow. three for a thousand I, gosh i, I feel that. like i've missed out i need to i need to get right on that <laughs> um essentially though just so, so that everyone understands what this is um it's a nano it's nano layer is a quantum holographic catalyzer technology um, for the balance and harmonization of the harmful effects of imbalanced electric radiation, um, mostly being emitted from 5G masks that will masks that will give you coronavirus. Um, so, <laughs> of course, people, yeah, I mean, that was actual science that I just read out there. Um, the other things that it can do are um, to do with restoring the coherence of atoms. And I didn't actually know that atoms were incoherent. So it's good to know that got covered. Um, um, and also emitting life force frequencies. You need them the life force frequencies. Of, oh, seriously, the best <laughs> kinds of frequencies are life force frequencies. And so basically there was lots of Twitter chat about this. Um, the BBC had got hold of one of these things that was being sold. I think I want to probably on Amazon, maybe on eBay or something. Um, and so uh, they, there was a teardown. People love a teardown. So they tore it down. Turned out it was just a USB key. So it was Pentest Partners who found this. Uh, they went and bought... Um, they, I think they actually bought a three pack, so uh, they made sure they're actually covered. What, uh, why? Why? <laughs> uh, so they, they said that um, like five uh, G, like quantum holographic catalyzer technologies are outside of their spectrum, but the USB stick definitely is. Uh, turns out it's a, uh, a one hundred and twenty eight meg uh, USB key with a wow. LED. They still and a, make those. LED, that was, they were surprised. Like they didn't think they made them. Uh, this is an. <laughs> It's basically an LED on the end that lights up a crystal. Like you've seen the crystals where you etch it in and you shine a light through it. It looks like all holographic. They're, oh, yeah. They're five quid uh, from any Chinese market uh, reseller on eBay. That's literally uh-huh. all it is with a sticker on the top. Amazing. So it's a chi- so it's a Chinese USB stick. Basically, if you, you spent two hundred pounds on a Chinese USB stick, but you know the bonus with this. Well, that's the bonus with this one. Didn't come with any malware on it. So you know you're already at an advantage. You assume it didn't come with malware. Well, that was surely if Pentest Partners were going to find anything, they were going to find malware. <laughs> you know what's really interesting about this, though? Isn't it the Glastonbury uh, councillor who has said that this... He's, I don't know whether he's recommending it. I think he recommended it. Or, he recommended it. I, 
isn't it isn't it the case that it also claims to like create some sort of sphere of like electromagnetic interference like free zone so in that sphere i assume it's no light like no wi-fi no 5g 4g 3g 2g like like, like this thing it's just a sticker on a really <laughs> old usb stick that doesn't even come with malware so the, the, the point was not so the point wasn't that you know someone is prepared to sell what is essentially just a usb stick and say that it's doing something mystical that it's almost certainly not doing we we actually can't prove that they can't prove that it is but we also can't prove that it's not um it was the reaction of infosec twitter that i thought was pretty hilarious um suddenly people were like well well why why are we not why are these people not being arrested people who are people who every day write stuff on twitter about the latest threat actor group or the latest bit of malware and with with the not even a crumb of outrage um but the minute it was a usb stick they all they were all up in arms where are the where's the um trading where standards. are the trading standards people like what's going on why is it why is no one being arrested outrage 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 and i was like hang on like it's not like you go running to the police every time some new bit of malware comes along just thought that was kind of interesting it's pretty it's pretty hilarious that you know if you sell kind of tinfoil hats you know is that the same thing <laughs> it's yeah you could, uh, yeah exactly you or i could sell tinfoil hats and say that they protect you from um yeah. you know intelligence agencies Trade listening to your thoughts like and if if we decide that that's what we say that it does and you decide to believe us i i, I kind of think that's dang to you i don't i i'm i was a bit I have to be honest. You could colour me perplexed. I wasn't I, really sure what. I'd the love to know. Was. I'd love to know who made. You know, is it someone who believes in the conspiracy theory, or is it someone just cashing in and the people believe in the conspiracy theory? Because either way, I'm interested in that person. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the other thing that I, it set me thinking about was because of all the outrage about how, you know, we need to get trading standards involved and we need to, you know, someone needs to call the police and they need to investigate this and all that. I, I did wonder how often um, are people actually reporting uh, cybercrime? So how often when someone gets infected with ransomware, for example, are they actually going to the police and saying, you know, excuse me, officer, I've been infected with ransomware. Please, could you go and find out who did it? <laughs> There's a website for this, Chris. You should know about this. Crime. Is it, there's a Crime Stoppers website. You can report <laughs> some cybercrime. I want to see this, the CCTV reenactment for that cybercrime. <laughs> action fraud as well. So, so we, action we will, fraud. That's yeah, action fraud. Thanks, Max. Yeah. So that that is officially where people are directed if they phone up the police and say, "Oh, by the way, I've had I've had a cybercrime happen to me." They do direct them to action fraud, and you do. Now they're actually um, adding those figures to national crime statistics, which they didn't do for about 10 years. It's like, crime's going down. It's great. And then they add the statistics and they're like, oh. It's just moved. It's yeah, moved. It turns out that, who knew, cybercrime is fairly ubiquitous. What a yeah. shocking revelation it was amongst those stats to discover that. But it's not if you don't add the stats, you see. It's clever. <laughs> Max, Max, it's not a problem you... if you don't look at it. <laughs> yeah. Max, I think you you have you know you have the most experience of all of us, surely in this sphere. Like how how equipped is a police force? Like or even action fraud? Like if it's something like a bit of ransomware, like what is the process for them? 
you know knowing that my auntie jean got infected by it (laughs) and then being able to actually do something about it like find someone who is responsible or you know whatever i know it's always follow the money i know that's always the answer but how does that work like logistically i mean it's impossible really because logistically in the uk all police forces are um you know based around geographic areas so you have to prove that there's been an offense committed in your area and generally if the old granny is phoning up in your area that she's a victim so that's one thing but um but obviously when they trace it back to wherever it originated if if they if they can even get that far and if it's outside the uk i think we had a few where we identified a, a fraudulent isp um doing some kind of fraud and they um and then we found they're bouncing it from china so it wasn't actually in the uk and straight away they're like, "Oh, we'll pass that to our, our Chinese, uh, right. <laughs> you know, colleagues." And they're like, "Well, that's, nothing's going to happen there." Is it? So um, yeah, it's very, very difficult. For that's I mean, pretty. I think I think that's pretty fascinating. I think that that the idea that so we all know that cybercrime is ubiquitous. We all know that people are victims of it every day. And then we have law enforcement, you know, um, agencies that are that exist supposedly to protect us against being victims of crime. But then what we say is oh no due to the way that our agencies are constructed we can't actually do a good job of finding out where the perpetrator of this crime is and so therefore it's highly likely that they will get away with it i mean that's the the massive gap right is is police is a very local uh, police and crime has always been a local problem Cybercrime is inherently international at all times so trying to kind of mash them together has always been difficult the national crime agency is trying to kind of and and same with um ntsc uh, here is trying to kind of bridge that gap but it's really hard it helps that there's lots of case law there's lots of um stuff for real i would not want to use the word real crimes but for like physical crime like there's lots of case law there's lots of laws whereas for cyber crime there's very little like we've got the computer misuse act and there are a couple of others um the u.s like wiretap act but there's no real like statute for cybercrime it it feels like it's one of those things that needs international legislation in the same way as we approach you know um, drug smuggling and stuff like that there it, it feels like there needs to be some kind of agreed upon international legislation that means that you can at least operate you know amongst your allies. I mean, I suppose this is what Interpol and Europol, you know, are are doing. Like, we've seen work that they've done, like, closing down, you know, criminal enterprises um, and cybercrime gangs and stuff like that. But I guess, maybe, Max, you've got some insight insight here, but I guess they're probably not getting any bigger or more heavily funded than they were before cybercrime as a thing. No, I think Interpol generally is kind of a information exchange. So they they don't have you know hundreds of thousands of of officers working across borders. They they're usually like one person in each country, and then they kind of funnel information through to the national. So yeah, it's um, obviously funding on on international things that isn't isn't growing from that perspective either. You have forgotten about the uh, international policy of if in doubt, blame China, and if really in doubt, blame North Korea. <laughs> blame Russia. Or well, Russia has got on the list as well, surely, isn't it? I know, but Russia's too easy. Like, Russia <laughs> If in doubt, blame China. And then if you really, really speak, in doubt, ooh, we don't know, it must be North Korea. Yeah. <laughs> with a, with a Is there anybody else that does cyber hacking? 
No, they're the only, no, the, they're only, the, only people, the only people the doing baddies. Yeah, that's right. Just so we're clear, the only people doing bad hacking are the ones that don't fit our own political ideologies. Just so everybody else that's good hacking. Yeah, yeah, hacking for good. Whereas everyone else, cyber war mm. or cyber terrorists, or I think in a rec- in the report oh, yeah. that I read this week, they called them cyber actors. That's what we. That's what we're going with now. Russian military cyber actors. Yeah. Are they actually actors, do you think? We just found it found a new podcast. <laughs> That's all uh, I've got. I was did computer science. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I, I so all of this chit chat about about the silly little USB. St- I'm sorry. I, I feel like I haven't taken this as seriously as some people. There was genuine moral outrage on, on Twitter, <laughs> but I feel like I'm not taking it as seriously as they were. Um, but apart, but that aside, I think what it did highlight for me is that it is exactly what Max is describing. It's like we 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 can't actually do anything about the some of the biggest ripoffs that are happening are happening you know on online, and we are restricted in the way that we can. Um, you know, deal with making dealing with making sure that those people, you know, get justice. Um, and and yet people were up in arms about the about the USB stick. So there it is, the five G bio shield. Get yours on eBay today for a snip of three for a thousand pounds. Mum, please, please don't buy one if you're listening. Yeah, don't, don't, don't actually buy one. <laughs> Note for all the listeners: don't buy one. Yeah, don't buy one. Or if you want one, spend the. F- Five dollars on the Chinese Shenzhen Martin. <laughs> if you want one, find two other friends. At least get a discount. <laughs> yeah, make it worth your while, guys. Moving on. So uh, the US, uh, N- I was about to say, read the US National Security Agency. Like I need to tell you that the NSA are the NSA. Um, but they have released a uh, an alert to government partners and private companies. Yeah, this just, this just in. This just in from the NSA. Probably Snowden knew about it years ago. Um, but about a Russian no, hacking, hacking operation <laughs> that it says uses a special intrusion technique to target operating systems that are used to manage uh, computer infrastructure. And t- so to d- boil this down to its uh, bare essentials, uh, this is a vulnerability in the Exim uh, mail transfer agent which is used on Unix, um, Unix based operating systems so it's kind of like uh, Microsoft Exchange but lives on uh, lives on Unix machines um, and uh, it seems to be um, that the suggestion is that they are seeing this attack um, being used in the wild and they don't give too much information away in the notice as to why they think um, it's a sandworm or Russian uh, threat actors but it's I think fairly unusual for them to release this kind of notification. Kevin, tell this me is so. Hang on, whoa, whoa, whoa! Before we get into actual technical detail, like, I need to observe the fact that this is a whole year old. Yes, this, is this, like this isn't something year. new. The vulnerability well, the itself. Have they been sitting on it, Kev? Why are the NSA only just done a flash about this? So Sandworm didn't notice? Oh, ooh, we just read the internet from 2019 and we found a new X in vulnerability. We're going to exploit it? Or have NSA been using it in all that time? Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> you're not wrong. We're, we're two days away from the one-year anniversary of this thing being out. Like it was the 5th of June 2019. Uh, the updates um, for XIM came out, which completely patched this. Um, so yeah, it, it feels strange that it's a year on that they're suddenly saying this, and 
a year later, it's a weird thing for attackers suddenly to be exploited. Like, how, how have they just realised? Like, we spotted this a year ago. How have uh, how have the Russians only just spotted I, this? Okay, so I don't think it is that. I think it's what Paul says. I think what's happened is the vulnerability's been out there for a while. Um, maybe some other group, some other threat actors have been using it, or maybe you know some proof of concept has popped up or something and and then this group has started using it and because they're watching their activities they've realized that this group is so basically it's a spike in in act in active attacks and that's why they're talking about it now that would be my instinct it's a dream access though kev Uh, yeah no don't even get me started on dream access like dream access is having remote code execution onto a domain controller like don't get me wrong like XM service sits on your perimeter. It's a nice target if you can get hold of it. Um, it's really like this is especially trivial to kind of exploit. It's just send an email. Uh, you don't even need somebody to open it or read it. But like dream level of access, that doesn't. Like, you've, you, it's dream level attack. That's pretty cool. Just sending an email. It's and the. Doing I that mean, thing. that's what I loved about it. I thought that when I yeah when I read it, I was like, oh, dream access is talking about what you actually get. And I thought the implicate. I thought it was dream access because the fact that the nature of the exploit was so easy. Like you basically just send yeah. an email with the right bash in it, and it Ooh. and it does it. Uh, you, uh, it's not as easy as just sending an email. I have happened to have done the lab on this. Uh, and, and now, a word from our sponsors. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I know. Well, <laughs> hey, I'm Pioneer. Say, in your faces. That means but, he's uh, the first one to do that lab, by the way. <laughs> but a whole year ago. But it's not, you don't just send an email. Like, you have to do some, like, you have to craft some scripts. You have to get the overflow going. And then, like, you don't just, like, dear, dear, like, dear mum, like, hack the Exim server. It's harder than that. Well, now, to me, that would be, to me, that would be dream access. <laughs> so, what you've just described. I mean, I personally loved your description of getting the overflow going. Um, I'm sure that's, you know, that's probably the hardest part. whole receives. It is trivial to, to exploit and. Arguably, if you've got access onto the email server, then there's potentially a lot of sensitive data. Uh, we know, like, email is ubiquitous. We know everybody uses it, and people will use it to send sensitive documents that maybe they should be using something like SharePoint for. Um, so, yeah, there's oh definitely God, potential. I forget you that can... you love SharePoint. Can you never do that? Don't do that on the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I don't love Who's SharePoint. SharePoint. Who loves SharePoint? You're like a SharePoint. You've got shares in SharePoint. Did you, did you just reference a SharePoint <laughs> server? on a podcast being produced in 2020. I think I, I think did, yeah. People still using that. that. He loves yes. it. Every week I have to put up with him going, oh, Paul, we should use SharePoint. Uh, it has... <laughs> <laughs> I'm done. I- I'm walking away. Yeah, don't bother. Kevin. I'm, I'm not it's biting. A, it's a waste of everyone's time. SharePoint Breen. <laughs> you know that's your intro for next that's week. That's my intro for next yeah. week, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so uh, some some questions I did want to ask about uh, why in particular they would want to be highlighting this now. Um, as a Unix, because it's a Unix vulnerability, surely that makes the attack surface much, much smaller, right? It feels like there's there must be a reason why they would use that particular vulnerability. They must be targeting... I don't know, particular kinds of organisations or like organisations in particular locate. Like what is it about 
this particular vulnerability. I don't think they really talk about that in much detail in the um, in the notification. In fact, just for context for everyone, um, all the notification really says is this vulnerability is being exploited. Here is what this vulnerability is, and you should patch. I mean, that essentially is is all it really tells us, right? Love and hugs, twenty nineteen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so you you, uh, you say love and hugs from 2019. Um, I did a quick showdown search um, just before uh, we started recording. Uh, there are 94,000 and change uh, servers that are still showing as being on the vulnerable version. And I know there are some, some versions around it. So that specific version uh, has 90,000 vulnerable so there's going to be more than that there's five and a half million exim servers around the world so when this thing first came out uh that would have been a massive target like everybody would have been hitting that um a year later and still have this seven seven and a half thousand in the uk unpatched servers uh which are still vulnerable Ooh, i had an idea Oh God! Oh God! Okay. <laughs> it's a great idea. It's a great idea. Right. So earlier you said, Kev, that uh, this isn't Dream Access because it's just on the freaking. De- it's not in the domain control. It's just on the mail server. But boring. Who's going to read all those emails? Well, but here's the thing, right? You exploit the uh, use this uh, access to uh, get onto the uh, mail server. Patch the X inversion, <laughs> seven and a half thousand public service. Thank you very much, Immersive Labs. And boom. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure that, <laughs> like, accessing other people's computers on no, any what? level is is illegal. Computer no, 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 machines, no, 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 like straight it. there. No, we're patching well, you, it. Hang on, you're nice obviously not thing. the pioneer. He's not the pioneer on that lab, is he? That Stop. says accessing yeah. other people's computers <laughs> is illegal. Computer machines act unauthorized access. You're not allowed but to I be there. I patched it. I'm doing a good thing. It's like <laughs> yeah. a, you know, like when you do um, an arrest when you're not a police officer. A a bit like that. Citizens arrest. Yeah. Yeah, that like citizens upgrade. A citizens upgrade. Citizens upgrade. Uh, <laughs> Tech a citizen's vigil- patch. This isn't the first time we've seen this. Uh, there are actually cyber vigilantes uh, who will actually create wormable uh, code that actually does what you were describing. Uh, they use it a lot in IoT stuff. So somebody released an IoT, so an Internet of Things infected webcams router worm, using the same code as the attackers were using, except this one went in patched blocked all those holes changed all the passwords uh, and then sent you a message saying uh, i fixed you you're welcome and off it went on to the next one for better for worse uh, mm. it's a thing that does actually happen on the internet and there's an argument to be had that if you are doing it for ethical reasons and you don't do anything illegal when if it gets to court uh, there have been cases where if you can prove you are an ethical hacker doing it for ethical reasons people have got off for that so it is illegal and if you want to go all the way to court and then, and then prove you, you might get off. I'm going to be honest with you. Going to court because I patched an XM server is not going to go down. Like, that's not going to go down. I'm not going to put that in my diary. I'm not going to put that on my LinkedIn, um, am I? Unless. I, I think there's a, more, there's, a more fun, no, there's a more fundamental question here, actually. So we're talking about us doing it. The NSA have just told us that they know about it and they know that Russian threat actors are using it. Why aren't they doing it? They're like the last time I checked, they're the security agency. They could be, I don't know, securing those mail servers, couldn't they? They obviously have the, chosen the reason to. why 
this is frowned upon. And the reason, uh, from a company perspective, the reason why patching cycles are so slow is because you don't know what impact that's going to have. Like, you could go in there, patch it, find that some other dependency now has a version mismatch, and you actually take their entire production email service offline. Dustin, and they have, yeah. no, they have no reason why. Like, it was, everything was working, then all of a sudden, like, everything's broken. Uh, yeah, I mean, they. it's been a year. Like, it's been a year you should have patched. Um, well, hang on, Kev. Well, you're basically saying the NSA patching your servers could take it down. Or <laughs> the Russians could use it. Like, I'm just going to what, what, what would be more ethical is just send send an email to all those email servers Ooh. going... <laughs> yeah, of course, because they're, they're set up to receive email. So that should be easy. Yeah. You're the, uh, the hero we need, Paul. I mean, not that when, you're not the not one, the one we, we want. want. The one we need. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, to the NSA who are listening into this, Paul is absolutely not going not to go going, do that. Really. No. Oh, and by the way, when Kev says listening in, he means listening to the podcast that's been published on the internet, yeah. not actually <laughs> just <laughs> listening in. Obviously, they'd want to, you know, they're experts like we are. They're on Twitter now. Have you noticed? Have you noticed? They're oh, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, I follow them on Twitter. They, they haven't they told fought. me anything useful yet. But well, they finally caught they up did. with the Brits. There's, there's the Exim thing from a year ago. Oh, yes, this notification <laughs> thing. It's a privacy <laughs> thing, isn't it? You've just, uh, by following the NSA, the NSA now know who you are. Uh, no incognito mode is going to save you there. So Google Chrome, the Google Chrome browser, and more specifically, the uh, incognito mode. Um, story this week that lawyers have filed a class action lawsuit um, trying to get at least $5 billion dollars out of google um, because because apparently it has been illegally collecting information um while people were browsing privately i think the i think the term illegal is a stretch here um i'm not entirely i haven't looked at a lot of the detail i don't know what it is they're saying that they've been collecting um but we all knew that we all knew that like incognito isn't doesn't stop other people seeing you as a wait like we like this this is this is going to be a dividing line on this podcast i think because max is a google hater and kevin and i are google lovers i'm not a google, google hater i'm just yeah realistic. you are he's a google re- he's a google realist yeah i'm just i'm just realistic mm. about the idea that one company owning all our data all our money and everything in the whole world might not be great for the human race that's all. such a communist so I, I've read the the so it's been filed in court. So uh, class action is five billion. It's five thousand dollars for everybody who's used incognito mode since like first of July two thousand sixteen. So in, like go into incognito mode now, so that you're one of those people who gets five grand. You know, yeah, <laughs> or you know, how would, how, would that, the, how would someone know that I'm using it? <laughs> all the people, all the people that watch porn since 2016 are going to get five thousand dollars. So I've, I've got the documents open here, and I'm just looking at the counts. So that's what they're claiming they've they've violated: uh, violation of the Federal Wiretap Act, uh, obviously U.S. Uh, violation of the California Invasion of Privacy Act, the new Zipper Act, uh, invasion of privacy, uh, and intrusion upon seclusion. Um, are the the claims that are being made Uh, and i'm looking through the document and some of the examples of where this is happening is they've opened incognito mode they've gone to a website and the cookies are in there they've gone to another website 
and they've clicked the login with Google button. And do you know what Google did? They tracked them logging into Google when they clicked the login to Google button. <laughs> I mean, ter- they terrifying. They their login information. <laughs> <laughs> terrifying stuff. But I think we'll all agree that that is quite the vision of the future Kev has given us there. <laughs> Come on then, Matt. Can we tell us why this is bad? No, it's... <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not necessarily on the other side. Uh, but it's, it's quite... I think they're actually splitting two things here. Because there's one thing which is incognito mood doesn't really function like people think it does. And then there's the other side, which is Google tracks you, um, which is two different things because incognito mode just, you know, clears your cookies, does one thing. And it says on the front, websites will still track you. But then the other side is Google tracks you across lots of different websites. Uh, but there's other, those are the companies that track you across hundreds of other uh, websites as well. So I don't know why they're picking... Maybe it's because Google owns everything, so they're picking them for the class action lawsuit. But really, the tracking bit is being done by not just Google. But are they not suggesting that Google are basically the um, Google are the enabler of that tracking because it's their um, browser that uh, that is promising um, in in their reading of what of what incognito mode does. Google is promising privacy, um, and therefore is 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 It's, it's exactly that. Privacy. That's so. Having read this document, that's exactly what the claim is. They're saying that Google are presenting incognito mode as a way of online privacy, whereas actually, like Max said, if you read that front page, what Google is saying is nobody else in your household will know what you've been doing. Not nobody on the internet. I think it's. I. I mean, I think that the problem that the lawsuit has, um, and that's why I think this is going to be a short conversation. <laughs> the problem that the lawsuit has is that that description on the incognito start page is so explicit in terms of telling you you can browse, but just so that everyone. Perhaps I'll read it so that everyone can have a reminder of what it says. So, you've gone incognito. Now you can browse privately and other people who use this device won't see your activity. Other people who use this device. However, downloads and bookmarks will be saved. Chrome won't see the following information. Your browsing history, cookies and site data, information entered in forms. Chrome won't save. So that's basically saying, look... Your activity might still be visible to websites you visit, your employer or school, because you're connected to their network, um, or your internet service provider. He's very, very explicit. Yeah. And I, I, I think it's, it's interesting if you used Firefox on incognito mode and then went to another site and there was another site tracking. Is then that a two different, another lawsuit against <laughs> Firefox and whoever's tracking you? That's not good. It's kind of, it seems a bit Edge muddled. also have incognito mode. So are we going to see three class acts? I'm opening all my browsers and going incognito now. I want all of those five, five grand, grand pieces. Piece. Five grand a piece. Every browser. Yeah. Except the Tor browser, ironically designed to do exactly what they're, they're upset about. I was just going to say, so what if you do want to browse the uh, internet without any of those people knowing, like proper non-class action lawsuit, just I'm yeah. asking for a friend. Tor browser. How would I? Can I go on the normal internet? There's a middle ground. Browser? There's a middle ground. So you've got Tor browser, oh. but you've also got things like Brave. So Brave is a browser that puts privacy like really front and foremost. Yeah. Uh, but my ISP can still your ISP see. can still absolutely see. Yeah. Um. Uh, you. So how do I avoid VPN. that? Tor browser. VPN. Can, yeah, but VPNs. Like, who are you going to trust on those VPN providers? Uh, how do you know that you trust make them? Make your own VPN. Just the man in the middle. 
Make my own VPN, so that's the only solution. And and there are ones like, like Tunnel Bear does show they've they've had yeah. a full audit. Oh, I just and they use... show there's no logging and all that stuff. So there there is yeah, some middle yeah. ground. There, there are well. some VPN you know providers that way. have full logging. Use your neighbours. <laughs> use your neighbours. Yeah, well, yeah. Paul's breaking the law a lot today. Unless the neighbour's given you permission and the password, then you're fine. Although password sharing is not mm-hmm. a great thing for people to be doing. Uh, but what if you don't not change not. the default password? Because that <laughs> technically is password Still sharing. Still working the law, Paul. You haven't been invited. Yeah, there's no consent. I think some of this is actually to do with um, it's people's perception of of Google as a, as a kind of as a company. Because it's like Google Maps, well, that's Maps. Google Mail, well, that's Mail. And now it's like incognito, right? That means I'm incognito. It's people are just, I think they're taking at face value that Google are offering them something with no, um, no caveats, no catches, no like. Uh, and I think uh, that's just they've given you the disclaimer on the page. There's even a learn more that takes you off to a website that explains <laughs> it to you in even more detail. Like the choice that you make at that stage is completely personal. Um, and I, I just, uh, to me, it's totally obvious that you can't. You can't sue them. I don't see it going anywhere unless they get some weird privacy advocate judge who goes, I just want to stick it to Google, not because of the validity of the claims. Also, of course, it wouldn't be one of these podcasts without us talking about Revil slash Shodan Akibi, um, which now, because we've talked about them so much, I can say absolutely (laughs) perfectly. Um, But Brian Krebs, uh, obviously very well-known investigative journalist around cybercrime and stuff like that, has published this week that um, they are now going to online auctions to sell off data that they have um i'm guessing this is because those there are organizations that have refused to pay the ransom is that what's going on yeah so krebs was reporting um that they're now starting to auction this off and he uh suggested that based on reporting that less people are paying the ransom uh, I'm, i can't remember where he got that stat from but um because less people seem to pay in the ransom then maybe this is a way of them recouping costs i'm not sure how much cost is involved with winning a, <laughs> a ring of their size but <laughs> it seems to be fairly easy like hack into the unpatched thing steal some data and charge them for it i do it's the crypto analysis company that did some that report on paying the ransomware the, the thing about this for me though uh is that uh wasn't this obvious all along like you've managed to get into a target's computer or system or whatever you've can take a copy of all the data then you encrypt it all why weren't they auctioning this data off in the first place anyway like it was a bit dumb well no i'm not sure about that i'm not sure about that because the argument surely is that the the that data apart from the trump example obviously that data has the greatest mm-hmm. value to the person actually to the person who owns it or to the organization that owns it doesn't it i mean the, like if 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 my if your encrypting of my data which stops my network from working for example um it's likely that i'm prepared to pay a lot more for that than some third party yeah sure but i could get 10 percent more it could be kfc's recipe by auctioning the data off and it, and it depends do they do they want to have to go through all that data because if they want to know that the, that data i think we talked about this previously but if they know that data has loads of good stuff in it it takes them a long time to work that out it's much easier to just go give me money we got it all 
uh, rather than go, oh, well, we can release this at certain times. Before they were using it to try and leverage payment. And the first time they'd have leveraged payment with it and then sold the data on, nobody ever would have paid, like nobody would ever pay a ransom again. Um, so I think this is a, just an evolution of that. Um, it's more, they want the ransom payout because they're going to get more money from that. So this is just another way of leveraging it. And the first time they do this, then maybe um, if you have lost like significant amounts of like IP, uh, something that might, um, like the cheap Chinese uh, electronic shops in China might pop up and suddenly replicate your your new uh, brand new IT, uh, then maybe that's worth um paying out for it does cite that um the report that found since covid um people are paying the ransom a lot less uh based on uh, analysis of you know the the bitcoin um addresses and things that's what one of the reports say the only thing i care about right now is have that law firm's data with all the trump stuff <laughs> gone like oddly that. enough that's the only thing odd, i care about oddly enough that's all gone that's all gone rather quiet yes it could be for two reasons it could be because they never had any data in the first place or it could be because someone's paid the ransom so i suppose we won't ever really know we should tell you, you know what we should totally talk about some very clever hacker found a vulnerability in apple like oh we are so great at privacy hundred thousand dollars <laughs> i'm in the wrong freaking job no but seriously this one was easy it's wasn't ridiculous it? like, you, registered as, you registered like as a, a, a single sign-on with apple then you registered the second email address that you didn't have to worry there was no validation of that second email address and all of a sudden you can like log into anybody's account it was it was honestly ridiculous like it was such a massive mistake it was such a massive oversight like you can't fathom how that ended up being like how I, i'm i'm literally i'm speechless I, I cannot fathom out how this became a thing but the thing that's really for me interesting about this is that literally nobody exploited this so I'll, I'll i'll get to that in a second so if i kick it back a bit so um the researcher who've discovered this um uh, was looking at the SSO. So this is single sign-on, and this is Apple's uh, login with Apple. And Facebook have it, and Google have it. Like, you can sign in with Google, register with Google, with Apple, uh, with Facebook, and Apple have their own. The surprising thing about Apple is instead of using, like, a traditional OAuth mechanism or a single sign-on mechanism like SAML, uh, they kind of rolled their own. Uh, and they're using something called uh, JWT, so... Uh, JavaScript web tokens, uh, and there we used uh, a lot. Um, they're they're fairly robust, but you need to make sure that you're implementing them properly, and that's what failed here. Um, so, like you said, Paul, uh, you can register an account, um, go to that single sign-on, like click some buttons, intercept that request, and instead of sending off your email address, you could send off any email address for any valid account and it would return you an authentication token for that user at which point you've essentially then got full access to their accounts um as that person and like he did the right thing this was done through responsible disclosure um apple said that they went and checked um all of those auth requests um and they determined that there was no uh, obvious signs of anybody attempting to tamper with that so um, yeah, and then for that, he got himself 100K US. 
Yeah, he, de- he nice. definitely did the right thing then. Well, what did we learn? What we learned was if you're a person who's any good at finding vulnerabilities, make sure you find them in gigantic companies because you get more money than you will if you find them somewhere else. You know what I think we really learn here is that if you're a gigantic company, that you should definitely have a bug bounty program because then people are going to find it. It's going to cost you $100, 100K, but nobody's actually exploited it yet. So that's actually genius on Apple's behalf to have that that program. So there's there's two, there's two a couple of parts there. So one is like they definitely need to improve some of their coding cycles, so not that in the first place, but the fact that they have enough logging uh, and enough security-related data to do that correlation, that's that's a big thing. And once more on that intriguing bombshell, it's time for us to end. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe, rate, and comment wherever you get your audio content. And if you want to know more about Immersive Labs, you can find us at immersivelabs.com or follow us on Twitter at Immersive Labs UK. Until next time, from all of us, goodbye. <laughs>